Welcome to Bibliophiles, a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. In today's episode, the Center for Lit team continues its quest to discover the great ideas in books of every description, ancient classics to new bestsellers, epic poems to bedtime stories. We're glad you came along. We hope you find this discussion as provocative and inspiring as the books themselves. Want to join the great conversation? Stay tuned. You've come to the right place. Hello, hello. Welcome back. It's time for Bibliophiles, my friends. Adam Andrews with you once again, along with riding alongside the Center for Lit crew. We're, we're joined together, even though you are partaking of this episode via audio. We are on a video conference call, and I'm looking at all of the smiling faces of my loved ones, the Center for Lit family, in particular Ian, who is right this minute doing a little elfish <laughs> dance. And I don't really know why, but you are. You must be excited to be among us today. What it is is that when you're on a conference call and the listeners don't know and can't see you, you can do all sorts of fun things to the other people that are trying to carry on a thought. And I think that adds, uh, I don't know, a little je ne sais quoi to the whole situation. <laughs> oh, we're speaking French. Someone hold us back. <laughs> so uh, before we get into any sort of literary conversation, how's it going uh, in the Center for Lit crew today? What's the news? What's the, uh, what are we going through? What are we... Uh, Looking forward to. Give us an update. Ian, you first, since you're dancing around like an elf. Go ahead. Ah, I don't know what I'm looking forward to. Well, I, that's not true. Um, the weather here in my uh, beloved town of Spokane, Washington, has been glorious and hot as a pistol for these last couple of days. We have, at various times, looked at one another while crawling into bed and just thought, how are we ever going to sleep? It is so hot in this room. <laughs> we don't have AC in our old house. and so. But today, the public pool has opened a mere two blocks from our house. And so as soon as we're done recording this, we are going to go jump in the pool. It's going to be great. Now, hang on a second. I happen to know for a fact that Emily's been at the pool already today. Are you going back for another round, Em? Yes. <laughs> yes very simple mm -hmm. i don't I have am. to explain myself i'm a grown-up i do what i want uh, we had a great weekend this last weekend we um had a new experience at least in my in my short life of renting a rototiller and discovering the joy and misery that it is to run a rototiller have you ever had to run a rototiller dad I have indeed. I know exactly what you're talking about. How would you how would you describe that experience? It's like riding a bucking bronco. That's how I would <laughs> describe it. That's exactly what it is like. <laughs> there is nothing quite like it. In the space, gentle listeners, of about seven minutes, I was completely and utterly bodily spent. My character <laughs> was falling apart. My ability to keep my cool had gone completely out the window. It was a real poop show. Considering that we had, I mean, another eight full hours of work to do, we spent all day on Saturday, tearing things off of our house and, and digging up gardens and all sorts of things. So it was really satisfying. I feel like a grown-up, but I also didn't handle it very well. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, good enough. I love those are the exactly the updates I was looking for. <laughs> uh, today, we are, we're going to talk about books eventually, because this is Bibliophiles after all. And I will share with um, the readership, the listenership, that the plan for this episode was to have mom, Missy, cook up a topic for us to discuss in the vein of bibliophiles, in the historical, the long historical tradition of bibliophiles, and give us something to talk about. Missy, I thought it was interesting hearing the path that you went on in preparation for this episode in terms of what you were looking at to read and the ideas that you encountered. Could you sort of outline that for us? Because I think it's, uh, it's interesting to find the... Uh, the acres of literary experience that you visited on your way to this episode. Tell us how that went. Sure, sure. I'll let you in on the circuitous nature of my thoughts. <laughs> but to be fair, this is the way that this went down this morning. We were having our coffee on the front porch watching a storm, and you said, so what are we doing for bibliophiles today? And the answer was, we don't know. And you were like, As it often well, is. I don't have time to think about that, so I guess it's you. <laughs> So and I I'm down here under the bus. <laughs> the, next... the, whole, the whole Center for Lit family went, nose goes. <laughs> so I spent the next four hours um, figuring out a topic. And this is the way that that went. I, we have a list that we've curated already. And we're like, well, we want to talk about this and this and this as the time goes on. And so I started with this. Books that deal with change and time and permanence. 
like, okay, yeah, that, that's got some traction. Let's think about that today because that's where I'm thinking right now, just in my own life with coming to the end of the homeschooling project, the end of the school year, um, kids moving out, my last one getting ready to fly the coop and being an empty nester, right? What does this look like? What is this going to mean? Lots of changes going on in my life. This has got some traction. So I thought, okay, well, let's see. Let's make a list of these kinds of books. How about All the Places to Love by Patricia McLaughlin? That's about the permanent the permanent things in, in a very real way, or hmm, maybe Letting Swift River Go by Jane Yolen. Let's do that, right? The, the flooding of the Quabbin River Valley to create a reservoir so that the people in Boston can have the water that they lack and the way that it destroys or covers over the childhood home of the protagonist. We could talk about that for a long time, right? So can we just talk about two? I don't know. Maybe we need some juvenile fiction, too. Because those are children's right? books. Those are both, those are children's both picture books. books. Right. Those are both picture, picture books. books. Yeah. So I decided to start opening some book lists and seeing what, what I can find to jog my memory to get Wait, there. hang on. Do you mean to say that you spent time considering a book list? Of course. Of course. <laughs> so I opened up <laughs> I'm Glass sh- I'm Hut, flabbergasted. And I started looking. And I'm like, well, it's not, really, it's not really jumping off the page at me. So then I decided, okay, let's open the internet. And I started you know, basically Googling <laughs> books to deal with change in time and permanence, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, this is, you guys, I just, this is what came up. Page after page of very politically shrill, ideologically motivated children's books. One mm. of which, I kid you not, I didn't know this existed before this search, was called A Child's First Book of Trump by Michael Ian Black and Mark Rosenthal. Um, from a very negative perspective about our sitting president and um, pictures, illustrations done in children's book style, um, just lampooning Donald Trump in order to tell children what to think about their president. I was, I was flabbergasted, completely flabbergasted. And then was reminded, it just, it just brought up other books of that kind that I have run into throughout the course of my life, you know, kind of swimming around in the children's book genre, right? So anyway, then the titles go on and on, and I don't really, that's not the subject of, of the podcast today, so I don't want to stay there. But it, it made me start thinking about what in the world is good children's literature, again, not like we haven't talked about this before, but it threw me back into it. Oh, man, we need to talk about this again. What is good children's literature? What's the role of children's literature? of the genre, right? Um, what should be the goal of the author of children's literature? Is, it, is children's literature for shaping the child's character? Is it for shaping the child's worldview? Is it for informing the child's social conscience or indoctrinating the child culturally? What is good children's literature? What should an author be about when he goes to write it? I mean, there are lots of ways to answer this question, lots of directions to go. But Lots as, of roles for the author to sit in in the kid's life. Yes, but as I was thinking about this, um, I pulled off the shelf a book of essays by C.S. Lewis, who tends to be one of my go-tos. He's, he's one of my mentors in the subject of He's literature. a defender of all things good is what he is. <laughs> well, he's pretty great in my opinion. But um, he wrote a little essay called On Three Ways of Writing for Children that spoke to all of these things. Really, all of these questions that I was um, w- that I was considering, and you know, he asked the question: When you go to write a, a children's book, are you really supposed to be giving the public what it wants? That is, in some way, you know, I don't like it, but kids would, so I guess I'll write this, you know. Um, or are you, on the other hand, preserving for them what they need, right? which would be, well, really, what my child needs is a lesson in character, so my story is going to be very didactic in nature, right? Not that there's not a place for didactic stories, but is that really ultimately what we should be considering children's literature as, simply a place to give a didactic lesson? Um, Or, he says, should the author be writing for children or rather for an individual child? And what's the difference in writing for some categorical children or writing for an individual person, one child. And he makes a really good argument that those two things don't have much in common, really. because Children as a group and an individual child? When When you're writing for an individual child, you're trying to find 
a common language, a common tongue, a, a common point of reference with that child to talk about things that are important with that child that you both would enjoy or that you both would understand in one way or another. So he really argues for that. And then third, he says form. Form is the third issue. Um, why should you write a children's story? Well, because the thing that you want to say works best in that particular genre. <laughs> and that led him into a long discussion about the, the fairy tale as a genre um, and change versus growth and all kinds of things like this. Because in true Lewis fashion, it's an apology for children's literature, this essay is. He it's just really can't an apology help it. For it. He can't help it. And it's very no. systematic and very logical and beautifully done. So this change versus growth, because this gets me back right to where we began in my little rabbit. I'm taking you down the rabbit hole. With you me, sure right? are. Well, I you thought just, that was really effective. I'm, hang I'm shocked with me here. I, you pulled it together. I'm totally hopscotching around a little bit, but we're going to get back <laughs> to where we're going to go. So that remember, we started with books that deal with change and time and permanence because that's kind of where I live right now. So he starts talking about this change versus growth. And he says this. And remember, this is in regards to children's literature, his apology for children's literature. He says a lot of people, um, they disdain children's literature as being something that's written just for the genre children, but mm -hmm. that if a, if a book could only be categorized as interesting to a child, it's probably not even a good book for a child, that a good children's book is a good anybody book, right? He says, he says this about um, people's distaste for reading children's fiction because in some way it would it would represent that they were in some way less childish. intellectual or yeah childishness on their part right. in some way immaturity putting, putting away childish things including anything you liked when yes. you were a child so he says this if I had to lose the taste for lemon squash before I acquired the taste for hawk that is a particular kind of German wine. Also, that lemon would, squash is lemonade, right? Yeah. So if I, I had, had to, to lose the up, taste, if I had to lose the taste for lemon squash before I acquired the taste for hawk, that would not be growth, but simple change. I now enjoy Tolstoy and Jane Austen and Trollope, as well as fairy tales, and I call that growth. If I had to lose the fairy tales in order to acquire the novelists, I would not say that I had grown, only that I had changed. Mm. And I wanted to think about that together for just a minute because immediately it brought up to m in my mind a friend of mine that I went to college with who was a, a literature major who was brilliant in literature, a brilliant thinker, a brilliant writer, a brilliant communicator, who wrote me an email at one point um, over the past years and said that, this, that he had stopped reading altogether because he found, um, he found the books too depressing. Everything that he pulled off the shelf that was contemporary was just way too depressing, so he just didn't read anymore. And immediately, what I thought is, well, you're reading all the wrong kinds of books, right? To quote Lewis again, uh, from The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, most of us know what we should expect to find in a dragon slayer, he says of Eustace Scrub. But as I said before, Eustace had read only the wrong books. They had a lot to say about exports and imports and governments and drains, but they were weak on dragons. <laughs> right? And why, why did it remind me of this? Because he's talking about fairy tales, right? He's talking about this, this particular genre of, that we would usually call children's literature that would have been so useful to my friend that maybe my friend could have benefited from revisiting for a while, not because of his immaturity, but because as a mature man, he had been so much in the world and the world had rubbed dirt in his eyes so that he could no longer see past the things right in front of him, past the, past the depravity, past the, past the material. You know what I mean? So might Lewis have said that, that because a reader like that has forsaken the fairy tales of his youth and has instead of grown to add other things to his reading, instead only changed from one kind of reading to another, that he has lost something or forsaken something important that would help him in the present. Is that the idea? It's exactly. It's exactly what I'm trying to say. And it's very much in keeping with one of the things that we talked about last week when we were talking about um, summer books, summer reads, right? And we were encouraging one another to go ahead and throw the need-to-read book um, that list, put it, put it on the shelf for the summer and read something you want to read. Read something for pure delight. Go back to the things that inspire you, that make you giggle, that kind of thing. And I, th I think this, this resonates with that idea because in some way, what is that doing but 
refreshing your, it's refreshing your spirit in a way. And Lewis seems to indicate that it's refreshing your spirit because the work, the, the, the good fairy tale is grounded in a kind of reality um, that you can't see necessarily. It's full of moments of wonder. Um, it's, it's full of magic, right? And children aren't confused about that. They don't read that stuff and then immediately expect to find it in their world. It's not that. It's that in some way, children have uh, an open heart and mind to wonder. And mm. that that childlikeness really does allow them to think out of the box a little bit. That is to see beyond the material, be beyond the matter. Not because they don't, they don't understand what matter is, but because their imagination is alive. And I think sometimes as adults, our imagination gets papered over by the need to pay the bills or by the, the, the despair endemic in the human condition. And we forget that the world is more than we can see, that there is wonder to um, connect with, that if we took the time to refresh our spirits in this way, we would gain a lot of perspective. Mm. So anyway, I wanted to throw that out and discuss this little essay and talk a little bit about um, what's a good children's book and what good is a children's book, mm. especially if you happen to be an adult. Ah, uh, yes. The, the, the term adult, I think, bears a little discussion, given Lewis's essay on it. I mean, I think mentioning what he says about the term adult and how it's used might be a good place to start, because he talks about the... Um, the way that adult is bandied about as a compliment in opposition to childish as an adjective. Adult as a, as a complementary adjective and, and childish as its corresponding derogatory. And with respect to reading, it applies to children's literature and to fantasy literature and that sort of thing in particular. He says Peter one, pantheism. Yeah, he calls it Peter pantheism. Mm. Yeah, that, that's the childishness is Peter pantheism. Um, he says, a man who admits that dwarves and giants and talking beasts and witches are still dear to him in his 53rd year is now less likely to be praised for his perennial youth than scorned and pitied for arrested development. And he responds to this charge because he is tacitly admitting he's writing this essay as a 53-year-old man who's still very much interested in giants and talking <laughs> beasts and witches, right? He responds um, first. He says, I reply with a two quoque. In other words, accusing my accusers of a logical fallacy. He says, critics who treat adult as a term of approval instead of as a merely descriptive term cannot be adult themselves. To be concerned about being grown up, to admire the grown up because it is grown up, to blush at the suspicion of being childish, these things are the marks of childhood and adolescence. So at the out the gate of his little argument, he says, away with this distinction between adult and childish. And I think that's probably something for us to keep in mind. Do you guys ever face that now? I mean, I, I know I do in my public discussions of books. The Center for Lit, we're always on about the use of children's stories. And I even still get people saying, children's stories, how fast can we get through these so we can get on to the real stuff? What do you think about this distinction between adult and childish? Oh, I, I don't think it's it's remotely helpful either. In fact, I think we talked about this on a previous episode of the show where, where you and I sat down and talked about some fantasy authors I was reading at the time. And I remarked on the fact that they seemed to be awfully interested in making sure that the audience for their book would be fully grown adults by filling up their book with stuff that was inappropriate for children. Right. And I, I think that's the mark of exactly what Lewis is pointing to right here. There's a sentence a little farther down in the same paragraph that says, when I became a man, I put away childish things, including the fear of childishness mm -hmm. and the desire to be very grown up. <sighs> I think it's, uh, it's perfectly Lewis. I love the way he says that. But as I was reading this, what I see is a, is a misunderstanding of the things that Lewis is saying that sort of puts the shoe on the other foot a little bit rather than... So Lewis's point is, let's just write good literature. And the fact that you're writing it for a child is really makes me know, never mind. The focus should be on writing good literature that says good and true things. And I think um, it's tempting to look at that and say, great, so let's write grown-up books for children. Instead of what Lewis is really saying, which is great, let's write as though we're all children. 
in other words, as though we're all in the grip of wonder, as though we're all uh, in need of instruction, as though we're all humble and just opening our eyes to a beautiful, joyful world. And so what I see is a lot of kids' books from people that know this principle being turned into lessons, Mm -hmm. having sort of adult uh, morality and adult moral questions freighted into them Mm -hmm. in a way that isn't associated with wonder and joy and beauty and question asking, but is instead associated with question answering. And this is something Lewis talks about a little bit later in the essay as well. I love the way that Lewis, in talking about the fairy tale, he says, he says at one point, uh, I now enjoy the fairy tales better than I did in childhood, being now able to put more in, of course, I get more out. Being able uh-huh. to put more in, I get more out. And he talks about the form. Um, the reason, one of the reasons he likes the fairy tale is because he says the form permits or compels you to leave out things that he wanted to leave to leave out. It compels you to throw all the force of the book into what was done and said. It checks what a kind but discerning critic called the expository demon in him and imposes certain very fruitful necessities about length. These were <laughs> some of the reasons I that he that. liked the, the fairy tale. But beyond that, he liked it because of what it aroused in him. He says, mm-hmm. the fairy land arouses a longing for he knows not what. It stirs and troubles him to his lifelong enrichment with the dim sense of something beyond his reach and far from dulling or emptying the actual world, gives it a new dimension of depth. He does not despise real woods because he's read of enchanted woods. The reading makes all real woods a little enchanted. Yes. This, this is why Lewis loved fairy tale. Is he saying what I, is he putting words to what I used to feel when I was a kid reading the Chronicles of Narnia or other fantasies where the, the woods were alive with the spirits of the trees. And I used to wonder whether those things were true or not, Mm -hmm. but not really in a sense where I thought, I actually wonder if there are naiads and dryads, but with a vague sort of um, delicious uh, excitement that uh, there may be something in the, in a general sense, beyond my powers of perception. I mean, I, I think I I think I had that feeling reading fantasy when I was a kid, and I haven't ever heard it put in uh, put in words like this until now. Yeah, basically saying that it awakens that that longing for something more, that that appreciation or that appreciation is the wrong word, that perception of the underneath that exists in the the seen world. This is what he's calling up that that longing, that innate child knowledge, right? Child's knowledge that there's more than meets the eye, that somehow we lose in the daily, the dailiness of life. We lose um, what G.K. Chesterton, a contemporary of Lewis, would have said was the magic in just a regular sunrise. Remember, he's the one that said um, he considered the sunrise as a giant show that God's putting on with God up there saying, do it again, do it again. So that's not just this dull repetition. Oh, well, the sun rose again this morning, but every day it's a repeatable miracle, right? And the child, the child wonders at these sort of things. And I think that the child in us still longs to connect with that repeatable miracle with that uh, hidden underneath, that other reality. Is Lewis talking about, and are we talking about fantasy literature for children specifically, or are we talking about children's literature generally? He starts out talking about children's literature generally, but then he very quickly narrows to fairy tale, the fairy tale and fantasy literature. Well, and he defends himself saying, this is just my particular bent. Sorry. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Which I think is kind of great. He does. But he's not, he's not wrong because really, even if we want to widen the net a little bit and talk about other genres, in so much as we're talking about fiction, they all share a, a common gene, if you will, you know, because they're all dealing in figurative Imaginative language. Yeah. 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 Fiction is well, imaginative and, and, and he also, he talks about fantasy and fairy tale. Um, I'll, I'll just read it to you because... Paraphrasing Lewis is dumb. He says it in the simplest and clearest way. <laughs> he does. Um, he says, point number three, the whole association of fairy tale and fantasy with childhood is local and accidental. Mm-hmm. I hope everyone has read Tolkien's essay on fairy tales, which is perhaps the most important contribution to the subject that anyone has yet made. If so, you will know already that in most places and times, the fairy tale has not been specially made for nor exclusively enjoyed by children. 
It has gravitated to the nursery, and this is the important part, when it became unfashionable in literary circles, just as unfashionable furniture gravitated to the nursery in Victorian houses. In fact, many children do not like this kind of book, just as many children do not like horsehair sofas, and many adults do like it, just as many adults like rocking chairs. And those who do like it, whether young or old, probably like it for the same reason. And none of us can say with any certainty what that reason is. So it is, it's something ineffable and imaginative. And I think it's probably the fruit of figurative language, just like you're saying. Mm -hmm. I think it's ironic that Lewis has become unfashionable himself. Oh, isn't that great? Because he said things so clearly and simply. I think that this extends beyond the genre of children's literature to just communication. Lewis had a knack for saying very complicated things very simply and people read him and assume that means that he was unintelligent or didn't consider the issue seriously because and, because such complex ideas were coming out so simply yeah it must I know be that's not necessarily true probably for the people who listen to this podcast but it is true and among my peers uh, he has gone out of fashion in a lot of ways and I think that I mean I see traces of it in the worlds that we work in we would rather hear something explained in a complicated way that makes us feel that it's important or or that, or that we, we are yeah that we are important or or that it's it, to be serious it has to be complicated mm-hmm. and what lewis is saying is no the most serious things are the least complex the simple ones and the most mm-hmm. joyful I love that, Emily. That's such a great point. And I think that that is borne out by this essay as well. I think Lewis was thinking exactly what you're thinking because he immediately connects the way that we read with who we are and how we perceive ourselves, mm-hmm. which is, A, only an accurate representation of the world. And anyone that protests, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't read like I am. I can read some other way. Or I have, a, I have a theory of reading that allows me to step outside of myself and read as some other person. B.S., that's totally untrue. You read exactly how you look at yourself. And if you perceive yourself as someone who is important and erudite and philosophical and intellectual, the right kind of books probably aren't going to appeal to you. Are you? And if you perceive of yourself instead as someone who is out to be delighted by the things sitting in front of you, you'll probably end up reading some fairy tales over the course of your life. I think that's what Lewis is saying rather gently. I maybe didn't say it so gently, but I'm is, not Lewis. Is Lewis's earlier sentence that I read a minute ago, his version of that, which is that the preoccupation with being grown up is a sure sign of adolescence. Yeah, and maybe what I'm saying is that it's a sure sign of um, intellectual pretense, perhaps. Is it problematic that for that very reason, I actually don't enjoy Grimm's fairy tales? I was going to ask you, Emily, I literally was going to ask you to comment on your experience with fairy tales. I, and I, you know, there are people who I respect who really, truly love them, and I, they don't actually appeal to me even having read one recently i think the story the narrative is really great but i don't really enjoy frankly the tone of Grimm's. I, it's a little grim dark <laughs> though, i mean i'm a dark person and and i just don't uh, i don't know it's it's not doesn't quite jive for me so emily i want to dig down to the bottom of this how would you how would you um, filter or interpret your experience of Grimm's and your opinion of Grimm's through what Lewis is saying in this in this article about children's literature generally and fantasy in particular. Well, the one I read most recently was Cinderella, so that's kind of the only one I can speak to right now. And at the end of the Grimm's Cinderella, she goes off and lives with the prince, but the thing that he ends it with, or the brothers end it with, is that the two stepsisters had their eyes plugged out and got what was coming to them. And that isn't uh, very redemptive. I, I, there's not a lot of grace or mercy for the stepsisters. It's not very complex. Yeah. And, and so, yes, Lewis is saying it should be simple. It shouldn't be complex, but, but that's not quite what he means. I don't think that, that it's not flat. Yeah. That's not wondrous that they got what was coming to them. Interesting. That's almost scientific. It's expected. (laughs) He does say at one point in in our article today that um, children look for the villains to be, I think that the quote is, soundly killed at the end. I mean, we are looking... So I could be wrong, yeah. 
I wonder because because I I resonate with what you're saying. I'm not a real big fan of Grimm's myself, uh, and, and I was kind of trying to get a feel for whether Lewis would put Grimm's in the in the category of of fairy tales and children's literature and be approving of them, like he sounds like he's doing for for Tolkien. Well, it could just be a taste Kenneth Graham. thing for me. Like I said, there there are lots of people who I respect who love them, and I'm, maybe I will be swayed one of these days. Well, he does allow for taste. And, um, mm. you know, he, he makes the concession that this is his own and that not everybody loves the fairy story. Others do, you know. That's right. See, but, but I do like fairy stories. I love Narnia. I love Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Uh-huh. I'm not opposed to fantasy. Uh-huh. It's that one that you don't like. Maybe it's the author. It may be. It could be. That that might be an explanation for me. Maybe it's that it's either one of the brothers Grimm. Whenever they got the quill pin up, I didn't like it. I don't know. Well, I'm also rebellious. <laughs> yeah, you know, maybe it's that, that what you just said, that they're too scientific. He talks about this. Um, people that don't like fairy tale oftentimes accuse it of, he says, giving children a false impression of the world they live in. And he says this, but I think no literature that children could read gives them less of a false impression. I think what profess to be realistic stories for children are far more likely to, to deceive them. I never expected the real world to be like the fairy tales. I think that I did expect school to be like the school stories. The fantasies did not deceive me. The school stories did. All stories in which children have adventures and successes which are possible in the sense that they do not break the laws of nature, but almost infinitely improbable, are in more danger than the fairy tales of raising false expectations. I love that part. Yeah, school isn't like Boy Meets World. That was a disappointment. Right. Yeah, right. and more, you know, moreover, and he says, we long to go through the looking glass to reach fairyland. We also long to be the immensely popular and successful schoolboy or schoolgirl. But the two longings are very different. Yeah. He says, the second, especially when directed on something so close as school life, is ravenous and deadly serious, like you're talking about, Emily. Its fulfillment on the level of imagination is in very truth compensatory, we run to it from the disappointments and humiliations of the real world. It sends us back to the real world, undivinely discontented, for it is all flattery to the ego. The pleasure mm-hmm. consists in picturing oneself the object of admiration. The other longing, that for fairyland, is very different. And he says, um, fairyland arouses a longing for he knows not what. And that quote that I already read earlier right. continues, right? There's no, there's no physical, earthly, scientific hope of becoming the hero of a fairy story. Right. And so it gets beyond that kind of cut and dry. Those sorts of disappointments, yeah. Yes, yes. So he's making a distinction, distinction and truly he's not talking about um, fairy tale when he talks about the school story. He's talking about more realistic stories, we would call them today, right? Where we make the main character going to school and we present school life as it quote-unquote truly is with um, the the child being the hero in some way or the underdog who wins or something like that. And he says that basically sets a child up more for disappointment, whereas a fairy story fills his heart with hope because it speaks of things beyond him. What I, what I think the connection that he makes towards the very end of the essay maybe gets at what Emily was talking about. The school stories that he's talking about there, um, I think are, I identify those today as situations in which stories, fairy stories, any kind of stories for kids are primarily discussed in the in the landscape of moral didactic teaching of stories. Garbed in. And Lewis says something really interesting about that, and I want to read it to you and and then sort of make the connection. He says, uh, before closing, I want to return to what I said at the beginning. I rejected any approach which begins with the question, what do modern children like? I might be asked, do you equally reject the approach which begins with the question, what do modern children need? In other words, with the moral or didactic approach. I think the answer is yes. Not because I don't like stories to have a moral, and certainly not because I think children dislike a moral. Rather, because I feel sure that the question, what do modern children need, will not lead you to a good moral. If we ask that question, we're assuming too superior an attitude. It would be better to ask, what moral do I need? For I think we can be sure that what does not concern us deeply will not deeply interest our readers, whatever their age. So let's pause there for a second. Um, The school stories are presenting the kids with a manual, 
right? Look, this, this, there's this good little boy who is the hero because of these little sets of actions. And this is something that happens in real life. So you, the aspiring hero of the story can successfully walk it out. And then when that doesn't happen, that's a huge disappointment. How are we doing anything other by presenting the world as a moral dilemma and conundrum that can be successfully worked out to good ends by your correct choices? Yeah by your good actions. It's exactly the same situation. When any teacher, and I include all of our listeners in this, who has sat down to try and teach before with any kind of knowledge of their own state, would have to acknowledge that that isn't how it works, right? There's there's brokenness that can't be escaped. And the joy that corresponds to that, the joy that comes from admission and repentance and reconciliation is the only kind of real joy there is. There's got to be a sense in which we're leading our students into an understanding of that principle because that and would I think be that's the moral what Lewis that is we getting need. at yeah I agree with that's you. that's the moral we need mm-hmm. right we need to hear that and so then he goes on one step further and this just tickles me because I couldn't agree with him any more thoroughly so he says we can be sure that what doesn't concern us deeply won't, won't deeply interest our readers and he says but it is better not to ask the question at all the question what moral do I need let the pictures tell you their own moral For the moral inherent in them will rise from whatever spiritual roots you have succeeded in striking during the whole course of your life. But if they don't show you any moral, don't put one in. For the moral you put in is likely to be a platitude or even a falsehood skimmed from the surface of your consciousness. It is impertinent to offer the children that. For we have been told on high authority that in the moral sphere, they are probably at least as wise as we. (sighs) Yeah, you know, he's basically enjoining artists, enjoining authors to write um, figuratively, to to create a metaphor with the story, right? And let the metaphor speak for itself as opposed to papering over a perfectly good story or sometimes a perfectly um, plain story with some sort of moral object lesson, a platitude. Mm -hmm. I really agree with him. Well, I like the way that he concludes it. Where he says, once in a hotel dining room, I said rather too loudly, I loathe prunes. So do I, came an unexpected six-year-old voice from another table. Uh Sympathy was instantaneous. Neither of us thought it funny. We both knew that prunes are far too nasty to be funny. That is the proper meeting between man and child as independent personalities. Mm -hmm. There's something so simple and it's joyful. It comes from a place of just openness and... And I guess that's what I I didn't see in my reading of the Brothers Grimm. I didn't see the joy. In maybe the maybe Grimm. the connection yeah, there, that. Emily, is that um, that the child says, "Chop off their heads, poke out their eyes," and what he really means is, "Let there be justice," right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> in his childish way, in the same way that he would say, "Flush those prunes down the loo." You know what I mean? Right. And he would right. say Lou. And he would say That's Lou. exactly what he would say. <laughs> to Lewis. At that hotel, in that era, he would say Lou. He would say Lou. So I, I wonder if that's, if that's it. It's that you, because you're older and you're more mature, your heart knows what it needs. And a child is still just getting his bearings in that regard. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, that author is connecting with that child and saying, yes, justice right? But not taking the child beyond justice to a deeper justice that would include within it all of the seeds of humanity and hope and redemption that you're really longing for. The story didn't go far enough. Mm, Right. Yeah. And I think that's legitimate. That's a legitimate use of it. And I I guess that's why they're around and they're still valuable. But I do like what Lewis says about you giving the child yourself, right? The, The part that Ian read, it's the author inculcating his work with his own with his, the contents of his own mind. And part of what that means is not talking down to them, not yeah. just giving them what they want, but, but providing them with your, the wisdom of uh, grown up imagination. Yeah. And it's a beautiful, I think it works both directions, right? The, because they're trying, the author's trying to communicate with a child and it calls up out of him all of the, the, the child that he was and remains yeah, in order to speak the same language in some way. And he, go, I'm sorry, Missy, go uh, ahead. I, I was just remembering um, one of my college professors who told me at one point in time, he was asking me to describe transubstantiation. And, I, you know, I was using all kinds of sophisticated terminology. And he said, tell it to my, t- tell it to my child. I want you to explain transubstantiation to my eight-year-old. And I was like, I can't explain transubstantiation to your eight-year-old. Are you crazy? That's too complex. He goes, if you don't understand in such a way that you can explain it to an eight-year-old, you do not understand it yourself. 
And, you know, I, I wrestled with that a little bit, but I think he was absolutely right that in some way you're not speaking down to a child, but you're speaking in, in clarity, right? You're speaking with clarity. You're simplifying everything in such a way as to make it, to make it a window that everyone can see through. Lewis, Lewis puts that idea in his own words in the next to last paragraph of the essay. He says, we, and he's, ta- he's talking to authors here, and I want to talk about how this applies to us as readers in a minute, because none of us are really authors, at least of children's literature that's getting published in the world today. He says, we must meet children as equals in that area of our nature where we are their equals. Our superiority consists partly in commanding other areas, which he's talking about as irrelevancies here, and partly, which is more relevant, in the fact that we are better at telling stories than they are. And that's the difference between Mm -hmm. a writer of children's stories and the reader of children's stories. The writer's a better storyteller, but everything else, on every other aspect of the thing, he's standing on common ground, speaking to to the young readers as equals, from, as he says, that part of our nature where we are their equals. That's what, that's how you can tell the difference between a, a good one and a bad one. And it may be, in Emily's case, maybe the Brothers Grimm weren't as good as that, as good at that as they could have been. It occurs to me that also, I'm, I'm not German. I haven't read it in the original language. There's maybe language things I don't understand or cultural things that I don't understand. So maybe it does resonate and connect with its intended audience. I was having a conversation recently at a convention. I was invited to participate in a lecture with a friend of mine and we were reading and discussing as a room um, a English translation of the Grimm's fairy tale Rumpelstiltskin. And uh, we were discussing whether or not Rumpelstiltskin was in fact a villain. And over the course of our discussion, it became clear that in the English translation, as we were reading it in front of us, there was very little to suggest that he was. We all thought he was, but it wasn't actually there in the story. The, the author hadn't presented us with a story where it was clear that Rumpelstiltskin was a bad guy. He was just a guy. And there were some circumstances, and that was pretty much it. And a guy raised his hand in the back of the room, and he said, I speak German. Um, Rumpelstiltskin means demon spawn. I'm pretty <laughs> sure he's a bad guy. And my response was, touche. <laughs> jumping hand, to the I, French. <clears throat> yeah, jumping to the French, touche. So I think that's funny that you brought that up. But the, here's the thing that I, that I can't shake because Lewis comes down to the end and he's nothing if not a humble guy. He's very clear, very precise, and he's willing to say, for my part, I'm speaking about one very specific issue here. And he says, on the far higher or of the far higher and more difficult relations between child and parent or child and teacher, I say nothing. An author as a mere author is outside all that. He's not even an uncle. He is a free man and an equal, like the postman, the butcher, and the dog next door, mm-hmm. which is just great. I love it. What a good closing. But it makes me wonder if all the stuff that we're talking about applies to teachers as well, um, and to parents, maybe even more importantly. It sounds like what Lewis is saying is an author looks at the child and identifies the ways in which he is exactly like that child and speaks out of those, mm-hmm. rather than assuming a position of superiority and or authority the or child. anything. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I love And it. I wonder if that is the appropriate way to do teaching as well, and I if a lot of is. the dangers of teaching come directly out of a misunderstanding of that principle. He says, the child as reader is neither to be patronized nor idolized. We talk to him as man to man. And mm-hmm. I, I, I think that, that that's exactly what this kind of literature does. And that's why it's so valuable, not just for children, but for everyone. Because it pulls us back to the center, to the core of our humanity, where age doesn't apply. Right. Right? We're just people. And people talking about and, and connecting with the permanent things through images mm-hmm. that um, in some way, because they're images, don't get bogged down in disputes, don't tether our mind in such a way that we're earthbound, you know, but allow us to float upward in a real sense to, to experience and to connect with the more that's behind mm. the, the world that we live in. And this is not just about children's stories. I mean, we've been talking about children's stories this whole time, but this is, this is the beauty of fiction in large part. Anything that, that works in this kind of picture language, anything that works through metaphor does this very thing. 
I want to talk about Robert Frost's birches as we close here. And um, it's because I think he, he basically, in just few words, because poetry is such compressed thought, in just a short space, he articulates what I think we've been talking around all, all morning, this idea of why it's significant uh, as a genre, children's literature, and why it um, demands the respect and the contemplation of an adult. He says um, in his Birches, he's talking about, when I see Birches bend to left and right across the lines of straight or darker trees, I like to think some boy has been swinging them. And then he goes on this long um, kind of a rabbit trail talking about how probably it wasn't a boy swinging them that bent the birches, but instead it was a storm, an ice storm. And he uses this kind of imagery to talk about the way that the, the darker realities of life, the destructive forces of nature, descend on earth and kind of wreck things. And he says to skip ahead a lot. I was going to say when Truth broke in with all her matter of fact about the ice storm, I should prefer to have some boy bend them as he went out and in to fetch the cows. Some boy too far from town to learn baseball whose only play was what he found himself, summer or winter, and could play alone. One by one he subdued his father's trees by riding them down over and over again until he took the stiffness out of them, and not one but hung limp. Not one was left for him to conquer. He learned all there was to learn about not launching out too soon and so not carrying the tree away clear to the ground. He always kept his poise to the top branches, climbing carefully with the same pains you use to fill a cup up to the brim and even above the brim. Then he flung outward, feet first with a swish, kicking his way down through the air to the ground. So was I once myself a swinger of birches, and so I dream of going back to be. This, this kind of return to childhood imagination and play and innocence, right? He says, it's when I'm weary of considerations and life is too much like a pathless wood where your face burns and tickles with the cobwebs broken across it and one eye is weeping from a twig's having lashed across it open. I'd like to get away from earth a while and then come back to it and begin over. May no fate willfully misunderstand me and half grant what I wish and snatch me away not to return. Earth's the right place for love. I don't know where it's likely to go better. I'd like to go by climbing a birch tree and climb black branches up a snow-white trunk toward heaven till the tree could bear no more, but dipped its top and set me down again. That would be good, both going and coming back. One could do worse than be a swinger of birches. Mm. This idea of, I'd like to get away from earth a while and then come back to it and begin over again. This is, I think, hinting at the gift of this kind of representational literature. Mm -hmm. It is encompassing it. It's um, participating in it, even as he writes the poem. But he's echoing Lewis's sentiment here, I think. We could really learn from them. From boys? Yeah. And wise adults could learn from both Lewis and Frost. Mm -hmm. Weary of our own considerations, walking through forests dim and dark, frightening into these unknown, scary lands. This return to our birch swinging days, it can actually provide us not just with relief or escapism, but perspective. Mm -hmm. This foray into what Lewis called the enchanted forests can remind us of the enchanted ordinary can reinfuse our minds and hearts with the meaning and the magic underneath, can reawaken our wonder at the wonderful and remind us of the figurative in our literal existence. It can push us to remember that sacramental world that Lewis learned from George MacDonald, his mentor. You're talking about literature generally now, not I'm even about, children's lit specifically. I'm talking about Fiction, right. imaginative literature, and of course, this kind of fantasy, fairy tale, posy, right? It connects most fully with this idea. And I think that's what Lewis is arguing. I think that's why he thinks that this is um, worthy literature for everyone. Mm -hmm. And that only books that can do this thing and do it well are worthy of being called children's literature are worthy of being presented to children. 
Well, I love the fact that we come around into the end to implying, at least, that children's literature is the highest form, the purest form of literature that there is. And since we're still here on the cusp of summer, I think you got a good, strong bibliophile suggestion to add children's literature, maybe even specifically children's fantasy to your summer reading list. Any objections to that from the Center for Lit crew? Well, I'm, I'm reading the Penderwick's last book right now. The <clears throat> Penderwick's at last. That counts. I think so. How about you guys? Any fairy tale on the list for summer? I'm going to go read some Brothers Grimm. What the heck? <laughs> if I can get any time to read, I'm going to finish The Worm Arubaros. Oh, wow. That's by well. E.R. Edison. It's actually mentioned in the essay. It we is. Read I today. noticed that. I noticed that. Are you, you're in the middle mm-hmm. of it? Uh, the middle is a strong word. I am. I have started it. I've begun it. It's a specific word. <laughs> Very specific. Fair enough. Word. Fair enough. Um, okay. I, I want to. I want an update. Emily, has the series arrived at your house that shall remain nameless that you refuse <laughs> to disclose the title of? No, it hasn't. <laughs> I have a detail enough. to share with the class before we go. All right. Which is that I once I went to college with uh, with a wonderful wonderful friend named Chris Waters who was a. Um, sort of a thin, quiet, gentle, thoughtful type. And he at one point was in a Bible class wherein for fun, the professor assigned a couple of passages from the Apocrypha to sort of demonstrate that the Apocrypha wasn't scripture. And um, Chris Waters found a passage that has since become one of my favorite passages in any kind of literature. And sadly, I cannot find it. I've been Googling sort of frantically in the background. I can't find it. But let me assure you that in one of the apocryphal books of scripture. It is recorded that at the fall, the animals lost the ability to speak. Ah, beautiful. So perhaps the kind of fantasy Lewis is writing is something that won't be fantasy at all one day. Perhaps when we long for we know not what, maybe that's it. Well, at least the truth, the kernel of truth at the heart of all of those stories We'll see that clearly. Wow, that sounds great. Well, my friends, we should adjourn and let our listeners go back to their lives and begin the process of waiting for another episode of Bibliophiles. Thanks for joining us, Senate for Lit crew. My gratitude as always. Listeners across the, I don't know what you call it, the blogosphere, the interwebs, thank you for tuning in. We encourage you to uh, give the podcast a rate and a comment if you'd like and also to visit our websites to see what else we're doing in the wonderful world of books and teaching and talking about life. Centerforlit.com, pelicansociety.com, where we are stockpiling resources for readers of all stripes. We'd love to see you, love to hear your comments and feedback, and until we meet again, my friends, happy reading. Happy Happy reading. reading. Bibliophiles is a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Find new episodes each month on the web at centerforlit.com, where you'll discover dozens of resources to equip and inspire you to participate in the great conversation, including the Pelican Society, a membership program for folks who love the Center for Lit approach to all things literary. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone. <laughs>